Hello and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing aliens in short controlled bursts. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mariah E. Gates, and today we're discussing Minute 31, which begins with Apone yelling, move it, and ends with the dropship lowering into position. And yeah, that's Mariah E. Gates' former guest, multiple-time guest host, uh, not guest host, but multiple-time guest on our show, and now guest host. Thanks for coming on, Mariah. Thanks for having me back. We also have a guest today. We have Asia Romano, culture reporter for Vox. Thanks for coming on, Asia. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah. Um, Asia, have you ever listened to a minute-by-minute podcast before? I Well, I listened to some eps of this one earlier to to prepare me, and I was a little intimidated because I was like, oh God, how can I, how can I stretch this out for the appropriate amount of time? But I'm also excited. So we'll see. Well, there's no pressure to stretch anything out. We try to, you know, keep everything in in context and talk about, you know, the meat of the matter. And if there's nothing more to talk about, we move on. So don't worry about it. But Mariah, you're well aware of what to do on the show. You're an old veteran of this podcast. Somebody, uh, Somebody tweeted they were excited that I was coming back, and I was like, I have fans. It was nice. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a reason why we ask you to keep coming back, so we love to have you on. Thanks for coming back. All right, so we're right in the middle of the uh, – um, they're going right into the mission here, and they're all fired up, Marine style. Yeah, apparently, you get real fired up and run to get into whatever vehicle you're going to be leaving on. So we're right in the middle of entering into the tank here. And, uh, you know, I think the first thing I wanted to say was, I mean, we've already had these move it, move it moments uh, with Apone and everybody gearing up. So we could probably just move right into Ripley entering the scene here. And what is, I'd like to hear your impression of of the performance here and what Ripley is conveying, what Scorny Weaver is conveying with the way she enters into the scene after having seen all this uh, gung-ho marine activity in in the last minute. Well, I think it's um she's a little wary, I think, which is understandable because she's never been in this kind of military vehicle before. But it, I mean, she has obviously she's she's Ripley, but but like this this particular vehicle, like we see it right before they enter it, and it it's a it's an actual like armored tank that's been modified, right? If I understand correctly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think uh, she's just sort of orienting herself, and and uh, like they all are, but I think. The the immediate emotional reaction that I get from her is she doesn't trust these people. She doesn't know what to do. Um, The sergeant's yelling about, like, taking command seating. Or not command seating, sorry. Combat seating, I think. Right. It's combat seating. Where does she go? So (laughs) that's the impression that I got. Yeah, I think this, you know, we've been talking a lot. Obviously, you're not privy to what we've been talking about in previous weeks. But my, I've been moving forward on the assumption uh, or on a theory that Ripley just really isn't herself yet in this movie that she's, whether it's the practical reason of having been in cryo sleep for 57 years or whether it's just being a woman out of time. Right. Or how it serves in a narrative function in that we need her to have an arc. So we kind of have to, we had extreme competent, badass Ripley at the end of alien. So we need to sort of reset her here to reset the arc. And I think she's – you would expect Ripley, the Ripley we know from Alien, to be a little bit more comfortable here. But I think we're – she's a little bit timid. She's still finding right. her sea legs in this time. So I think that's a big part of it. I also don't think she trusts these guys. I think, you, Asia, you kind of might have mentioned that in, in your summation of what you thought she was feeling here. I think she's 
worried about dealing with these guys. She, they haven't shown her a lot yet. So, yeah, I think this whole situation, it's definitely, there's definitely reason for her to be wary here. Right. And she definitely seems disoriented, I think, a little bit. And I think that goes back to, I mean, there's the fact that uh, I think on the director's cut, the commentary, they talk about how the ship is a TARDIS. It's bigger on the inside, you know? So I think that in itself is, is a little disorienting to us because we see it from the outside and then we see it on the inside and it's huge. So we're sort of in her perspective of what is this thing? I also wanted to point out that there's um like right before, actually it's right after she enters, after Ripley enters, there's that great shot where, and I had to watch it a couple of times because I was like, am I just reading too much into this? And I might be, but um, there's, so Vasquez leaves her rifle or leaves the, the like steady cam weapon thing. Like she, she hooks it onto the, the support or whatever, whatever it is. And then we see um, the Lieutenant like sliding away from it. And it looks like he's just doing it because he's doing like technical things. But I really love that shot because it looks almost like he's repelling away from this weapon <laughs> yeah. in fear. And I love that. Yeah. He, the Gorman's definitely, you know, we've talked about that a little bit and he's going to reveal you know, in, in very specific terms that he's not really a combat kind of guy. So right. yeah, I, that's kind of funny. If you, if you read that in that moment, that's, that's interesting. I don't know if James Cameron was shrewd enough to actually uh, block the scene that way or not, but yeah, it's an interesting reading. Right. I mean, even just the staging of it, I mean, he's always being shown away and apart from the other, the, the other military, the other Marines. I wanted to get, talk to a, a little bit about Ripley. So you talked about the combat seating, I guess in their, in the, her particular case, her combat seating is sitting over in the corner with Burke. Yeah. And, uh, this is interesting. The way this is put together there, uh, it, it appears that everyone has these sort of roller coaster restraints, you know, that are pulled down over them. Um, and, and it looks like that they're seated in twos and that puts her and Burke together again. And earlier in the movie, when he's trying to convince her to, in her apartment to come along on the mission, uh, we talked a little bit about how this that was shot and how it ended. There was this moment of emotional climax where she tells him that she's absolutely not going. And those are in, uh, shown in real tight close-ups between the two of them. And then it cuts to this odd, tight, medium two shot where they're squeezed together in this frame. And he's still trying to – he gives her his card and so on. And I said back then that it was almost felt like they were being tethered together. Like that was what we were being told here. It's like, okay, well – she just tried to push him away, but the next cut shows that they're not going to be pushed away, that they're actually still going to be tethered together. And here we get a literal tethering together of them having to be held by the same restraint. So I think she's still tied to Burke, unfortunately. Sadly, he's a he's not a, a very good character to tie your, uh, your wagon to, but we don't know that. We suspect that now. We don't know that quite yet. I actually really like this entire sequence, and one of the things that I love about it is how much a, a company man Burke remains through, like, even though he's just basically yielding, he's just sort of lobbying facial expressions. <laughs> like, for right. the most part, like, he's in the middle of this group of Marines, and he's not giving anything away, like, not even to when when Ripley is obviously mistrustful of these people and where she's going. He's just so opaque, you know? He's not, I just, that always really struck me. You know, he seems like he is the kind of person who would at least be trying to get her to get on her good side by, you know, rolling his eyes or something like that. You might expect a little a little more, I guess, empathy for what she's feeling from him. 
you know? Yeah. But I don't get that from him at all. I think he's he's trying to play at both sides of the coin here. Like he's trying to, you know, subtly acknowledge that she has right to be wary, but also he's like his his number one concern is the company and making the company look good at all costs. Yeah, he's definitely um somebody who keeps all his cards very close to his chest. Yeah, he's he's a salesman, you know, and an uh, opportunist, you can tell. He, I have he's... I have something I want to say about that in a couple of minutes. Sure, go yeah. I mean, go ahead right now. Oh, no, 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 it's has it's minute 35. Oh, I see. I literally a couple I Literally see. a couple of minutes. <laughs> a couple of day, in a couple of days, couple, I see. In a couple of days. I wanted to mention Pharaoh. I think she's maybe my favorite character in this movie. Okay. Um, she's so awesome and like just down she like knows what she's doing. She knows what her mission is. She doesn't even when like spoiler alert later in the film, she's trying to like pilot and fight an alien. Like, it's amazing. Um, but what I was gonna say is this impression that you get of her, this is 1986, right? It's the same year Top Gun came out. She looks just like the guys from Top Gun with the, the aviator glasses. Absolutely. She's got that hat that says fly the friendly skies. Like she's just as cocky and like certain of her abilities as a pilot as those dudes from Top Gun. And I really, I like that a lot. I think she's yeah, an interesting she character. Yeah, totally perfect. Just completely 100% together. You completely buy that she is flying this plane, like that she, you know, earned her wings and that's why she's flying this plane, even before she really says anything. Yeah, and we'll see in a couple of, you know, over the next couple of minutes how cool she is uh, in the it, as a pilot. Like, they, we don't have to get into it now, but the, she's definitely very, very competent, very good at her job. And we'll get that impression in the next couple of minutes. Yeah, you pointed out that the Top Gun similarities, even the hair. I thought about that when they first got out of the cryo uh, pods. She even has that kind of gelled back hair like yeah. Iceman. Uh, Val Kilmer sort of look. So there's no there's no way they could have known about that movie quite yet, I don't think, when they were shooting. So it's funny to see. It's almost more like a, just a little time. We're getting a little snippet of time. This is what pilots were like at the time, maybe. Yeah, or Hollywood thought pilots were like. Maybe. Um, you also have, like, uh, Bill Paxton, like, being the boisterous man that we love. I love that um... – like, I, I'm not really sure how the, the cut scene, I mean, I know how the cut scene that he gets later that I guess we'll talk about at some point fits into this, but it looks like um, the sergeant tells him to lock it down and he sits down and then is like immediately up like a couple of minutes later and he's just running around being Bill Paxton-y and, uh, and I love that. All the other people are actually taking their seats and he's just doing his own thing. Yeah, it's funny. I, you know, we always talk about these director cut changes, the things that were originally cut, then were re-added into the director's cut. And this is a big one, right? Um, honestly, I forgot that it wasn't part of the original movie. When I went back to watch the theatrical cut, I completely missed the, the big crazy bravado, you know, description of all the weapons scene that we were going to get here. But, you know, we just get the, I'm ready to get it on and high fiving, you know, and then the scene is over. I think I miss it. I mean, I think I, not only did I miss it, watching because I thought it was going to be there, but I miss it because I think it's actually plays into the subtext of the movie quite a bit. Yeah. It might be a little heavy handed. Right. I think without that, we need that big hubristic moment, I think, 
to tell us what these Marines, what the Marines function within the subtext of the movie is. Also, the fact that it's Hudson who delivers that 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 speech about the, uh, you know, the power of their weapons, because I think we can easily overlook the fact it's not really something that's brought explicitly to our attention. But Hudson is obviously he's the hacker of the group. He's the technical guy, right. you know, and when you have him talking about these weapons and how high performing they are it means something different than if you have a regular grunt talking about them because he's probably someone who knows how they work technically he's probably you know he has some sort of ownership over them and i think in that scene in that cut scene he he moves from everything he says when he if you go through it he says um check it out like three times right and every time he says check it out he's talking about some different aspect of their security he's talking about hey i'm a badass check it out and then he's like check it out ripley these marines are going to protect you because they're all badasses and then he says check it out again and um this time he goes on the the speech about the weapons you know so he is really building us up for this sense of security that that is then immediately torn down yeah and and it's going back to the beginning of the minute you know, I want to ask you what your impression uh, is of why Paxton uh, Hudson points this all to Ripley. Is he is he just showing off for Ripley? Did he notice that she was a little wary and he wants to actually uh, uh, make her feel safe? Or does this go all the way back to this idea that she's Snow White, as, as Vasquez and uh, Pharaoh call her back in the locker room scene? And she's a woman out of place because the rest of the women uh, in this Marine troop are just one of the, they're, they're just part of the guys. Right. So is Ripley just like sticking out like a sore thumb and he feels like he has to reassure her? Or do you think he actually feels like uh, she needs to be comforted in some way? I don't know. I'm just trying to get to other people's impression of how to read his motivations behind going on this tirade. I think I've always read it as a bit defensive on his part. Because I feel like when their collective impression of Ripley at this point is that she has come from this place already. She's been through this mess and she thinks she knows what she's doing. And I think that they feel like she's lording that over them a little. So I feel like part of his his bravado here is kind of, you know, puffing out his chest to say, hey, you may think you're all that, but so are we. Here's why. They definitely also clearly don't take well to non-military people in general. So, like, the way they talked about Burke and the way they talked about the new lieutenant who is, made, you know, so new that he's not even really military yet in their eyes. So then her having experience with what, they, what they're dealing with over that just couples their resentment, I think. I think it also plays really well into Hudson's character because he's the kind of guy who is showy, but also, you know, insecure underneath, you know, he's the kind of guy who wants Bishop to do the hand thing, but not if, <laughs> not if it applies to him, you know? Yeah. So we right. see that. And then we see this and it's like, Hey, I'm a badass, but let me immediately fall back on telling you why these weapons are going to protect me, you know? So I think it's a form of reassurance. Like he's reassuring himself as much as he's reassuring Ripley. Now, what what do you think they think Ripley went through exactly? Because that's an inter- I, nobody's brought that up yet. But I mean, we got the inquest where they didn't believe her at all, and then something happens on LV four twenty six. So then they believe her to a certain extent. She tells the story of what happened to Kane, but she never tells anyone the story of how she got a, how she survived. Right. 
Do you think that they they know that she's kind of a badass and that she was able to get herself out of that, or do they do you think that they assume she lucked her way out? I don't. I don't think she ever got the opportunity to tell them, and I wouldn't think the company would tell these soldiers anything. So they probably, I, I would think, don't know anything about her, and so immediately assume she's incompetent. All they know is all they know is that her crew died, right? So as far as they know, it's her fault her crew died, not that she literally tried to save everyone and a cat, you know? Right, right. And that she managed to save the cat, (laughs) (laughs) despite all odds. And don't forget, you know, the marine mentality is no man left behind, right? That's the the Uh one of their slogans. So maybe they think less of her even because she survived and that nobody else did. I don't know. Well, I think that's. That's why it's important that the only people who see her in the loader are Hicks and the sergeant, you know, because they are obviously really immediately impressed by the fact that she can, you know, move the loader. And that moment always reads a little weirdly to me because I'm always like, are they just laughing because they think this is hilarious because she like they expect her to be completely unskilled? What is happening? You know, like, why is that as funny as it is to me? But I think it also sets us up for the fact that Hicks is one is basically the the person who reaches out to her and and sort of helps her assimilate into the group because he's seen he's the one who actually has actually seen her be competent at something. Yeah. Yeah, we talked a little bit about why it is that they're so surprised. Uh, They're surrounded by like competent women. Right. Why are they so surprised that Ripley would be a competent woman? Yeah, that's always been that's always read a little weirdly to me. And and I always come back to, well, they probably just know that she was stripped of her her uh, license to fly. Right. Um, Maybe that's the because I'm assuming that would be public information. So that's probably what they know of her if they know anything other than what she said about the face hugger. Right. To me, yeah. though, the fact that she even tells the story about the face hugger would be enough to sort of take her seriously. <laughs> yeah. But they all, but they just cut her off and are like, whatever. So. Yeah, well, I, I just wonder, I keep wondering what, you know, gender, what role gender plays in this 57 years later version of the Alien universe. Where, you know, in Alien, we got Lambert, you know, the scream queen of sorts. And that tra- kind of a traditional female role in a horror movie, where in this movie we're getting the reversal, right? Hudson ends up being the Lambert in this movie, not to give too much away. And we're getting these all these women in these very, you know, like in roles that are tr- what would traditionally be like equal to men, right? Where they're, they're just as common. The woman is the pilot of the ship. The man's the co-pilot. The, the woman is the alpha in the group of guys in the locker room. She's the one doing the pull-ups first and so on. So gender roles are very different in this movie compared to what we saw earlier or what we understood in 1986 in the world in 1986. So I keep wondering if they just assume she's from a from another time and not hasn't caught up yet to what it means to be a woman in this in this year. I don't know if that makes sense, but I keep trying to figure out what it is, how it is that they're seeing her as so different from the other women that they work with. I wonder, too, if it's a a military thing. You know, they were the actual actors. Uh, were encouraged to sort of do military exercises and training together to sort of have that bond. And it could just come down to she's not military. We don't we don't feel the that sense of, of you know, camaraderie with her, and we don't mind showing it. That's true. It could be that simple because they never really point out her uh, being a woman. They just have doubts about her. I, you know, I guess it's easy to assume that the reason would be, because typically that is the reason that you get in a movie, 
for someone doubting a woman's ability. But maybe in this particular case, it's too much of an assumption to think that that's the motivation behind it. So that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think her being an outsider and her being almost but not quite. Well, she was at one point a company employee. That makes her completely othered from their group and from their, you know, way of life. Even if her her job when she was a company person was grunt work, basically. She's still more like Burke than them. Yeah, you'd have to be skeptical of the company, even though these Marines apparently sort of work for the company. I think we find that out more as the movie goes along, but we've already gotten the impression that Burke was in charge in the in the room uh, in Ripley's apartment when you know he's trying to get her to come on board the mission. You don't get any input from Gorman, and, and Burke continuously says, I want you to come along. He's never really including Gorman in the talk, and I always felt like, okay, that's we're setting up the company's the one in charge here. The Marines are more pawns for the company. So I think if you worked under those conditions, you'd probably be, even if you're just a grunt, you're probably aware of that sort of a power dynamic, and you're going to be skeptical of anyone that has anything to do with the company. I mean, as far as they're concerned, she's along with, she was eating with Gorman, and yeah. And yeah. Burke and so on. So, yeah, right. you're right. It's probably just more of a class status thing or an otherness than it is a gender thing. But I still can't help but to explore the gender <laughs> dynamics in this movie because they're um, they're they're kind of novel in a certain way. I, I, the way that we see Vasquez and, and Pharaoh and other characters uh, personified in this movie, it's it's different for what we from what we usually saw in 1986 for sure. OK, so you, have, you guys have anything else for this minute? I have all my notes. I think that's it for me. All right. Asia, do you want to tell the uh, listeners where they can find you on the internet? Sure. Um, I am at Vox. Uh, My byline is just Asia Romano. Um, You can also find me on Twitter at Asia Romano and on Tumblr as Bookshop. And how about you, Mariah? Uh, You can find me all over the internet as at Old Films Flickr. You can find us at AlienMinute.com, on Twitter at AlienMinutePod, or on Instagram at AlienMinutePodcast. I want to give the regular Monday shout-out to the guys at Star Wars Minute, Alex Robinson and Pete the Retailer. Thanks for loaning us your format, guys. Uh, Appreciate it. If you've never listened to Star Wars Minute, go check them out at StarWarsMinute.com. All right, well, that's going to do it for Minute number 31. We'll see you tomorrow for Minute 32.